this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer with Harry Sudok from Grid. Harry and I had a great conversation about Bitcoin mining. Harry and his team over at Grid have been working on some really interesting projects in the mining field. We talked about the halvening, which is a subject of conversation amongst many people in the Bitcoin and non-Bitcoin community. And so that's coming up in the next few months here in 2020 as we're getting closer to that. Um, And so this was a great conversation about mining, about the economics of mining, about the modeling of that economic data and the inputs and outputs of everything that's happening there, the valuations associated with mining and Bitcoin price. So this is a great conversation, all encompassing. And I really love the team over at Grid. Uh, Trey and Harry are really super smart. And so remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you hear a great conversation with Harry from Grid. Enjoy. This is Base Layer, and this is David. Uh, this is a new show with a friend of mine and a friend to many, Harry Sudok from Grid. Harry, how are you? I'm well, David. Thanks for having me on. So not too often do I get to have people on who I know incredibly well and actually consider friends. So this is going to be a fun conversation between us. And this conversation is going to be around a lot on the concept and the notion of Bitcoin mining. Uh, Harry and his partner, started a company uh, that is specifically working in that space. Um, So we're going to go into Bitcoin mining. We're going to go into the halving. We're going to go into lots of things that are happening here in the United States in regards to Texas. We're going to go into the evolution of mining and how it's changed over the last few years. Um, And there's modeling and there's lots of things that normal traditional investors would be able to feel very comfortable with and understanding the world of Bitcoin mining, in my opinion. But before we get into all that good stuff, Harry, if you could, as everyone knows on my show, I like to actually give a little bit of context and a little bit of history about our guests, what they did prior to jumping into this crazy world. So if you could tell us what you, uh, what you did before Grid and uh, give us a little bit of an insight into not necessarily the when Bitcoin moment, but exactly what led you into this world, what inspired you to get involved? Uh, absolutely. Um, so prior to getting involved uh, in our crazy industry, um, I got sucked uh, out of college into a startup uh, called Enso Financial Management, where we built um, trading optimization strategies for hedge funds. So we were a, a, a data and a software layer that sat on top of a hedge funds operation and, and basically helped them unlock operational inefficiency. So coming from a, a background in, in data and software products um, and startups, you know, really was a good primer uh, from a skill set perspective. But then, you know, to me, even more importantly, getting to understand how financial institutions relate to each other technologically was eye-opening because, you know, you don't understand how much duct tape and spaghetti code and, um, you know, dis- disastrous complexity sits underneath, you know, point, click, execute, trade uh, until you, you know, work in a data business that sits on the back end of, you know, all the banks you've probably heard of, or maybe some of your listeners have worked at, work at, um, 
the the level of complexity there is is so astounding um, and really was what primed me to be ideologically aligned with this industry because just just understanding you know how many um, you know risk vectors there are in a trade break or you know you know failure to settle you know there, there's so much happening back there and there's so much risk um, that the transfer of an asset from one person to another you know is is deeply complicated not to mention the aggregated fragility and systemic risk that happens when you take a lot of you know, risky things and you pile them all together. So, so that, you know, that company ended up getting sold uh, to the CME. I stayed there for another year, um, you know, think incredibly highly of those folks and, and, you know, stay in close touch with many of them. Um, but kind of in that last year, year and a half, I started getting obsessed with, with Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, I see it, you know, for all the different, different things that it is, which is it's a macro instrument. Um, it's a speculative asset. It's, uh, you know, a, a social reorganization tool. It is, um, it's a, te- you know, it's a technology. You know, so I, I got excited about it because there's so many ways you can come at it. Um, and so much you can gain from it. So, so, you know, a, a year and a half before I left my prior gig, I started to think, you know, I have to be involved in this industry somehow. I didn't know kind of what was the quite right fit for a while. Um, until I had the opportunity uh, to meet the CEO and founder of Grid and uh, and join up here. I always think it's one of the things that I try to do on the show, but also do with other people in real time, is I always try to come up with analogies on what Bitcoin and the corresponding kind of blockchain spaces. But with Bitcoin specifically, as you alluded to, it has many different faces for many different names. And it always makes me kind of remind myself of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with Veruca Salt and the Gobstopper. And she is like, oh, I taste raspberry pie. I taste a Thanksgiving dinner. I taste, and it's just the same. It's one Gobstopper and she keeps tasting all of these different things. Um, And it's kind of the same way with Bitcoin is that it could be a global macro tool. It could be something that can help people that are in countries with extreme hyperinflation they're you know on and on and on and so I, I i agree with you on that so if you could uh tell us a little bit what you you started talking about grid what is grid um what did you guys build and what are you guys doing in the ecosystem absolutely um so we're grid infrastructure we uh think of ourselves really as an infrastructure company because we you know as I came to mining and as, um, you know, as Trey and the rest of the team kind of came to mining, we, we wanted to think really deeply about where can we bring some value to the ecosystem first and foremost? What business models make sense? Um, you know, it's that, it's that the, the happy medium between, you know, what business models work and what can we do well? Um, and so we build a high dent, what we think of as a high density data center. Um, what that means is we bring a lot of power to a very small footprint. Um, and the, the current use case for that is mining Bitcoin. Um, and how has that changed? You know, how, has think- that, how has that changed over the last few years? I want to get into this. So you're mining Bitcoin, you're creating the infrastructure behind that. Talk to us over the last two to three years. How has that changed? Because I think the notion of Bitcoin is familiar to many people out there now, but the actual 
when I get into the nuances of, well, this is how a Bitcoin is created, I don't think a lot of people get it outside of our world, air quotes. So talk to us mm -hmm. about the evolution of Bitcoin mining as it relates to grid over the last few years. Certainly. Um, so the, the answer is, is that we, you know, we see ourselves as a, as a great opportunity to bridge the old world and the new world. Um, so to give you an example, you know, I spend a lot of time sitting with folks who run a utility company. I spend time with general contractors. I spend time with normal real estate attorneys. I spend time with state and local representatives, you know, county mayors. You know, these are the folks whose, whose offices I spend a lot more time in than technologists or, you know, crypto dedicated folks. So, so the, the majority of my time is allocated to, to, you know, incredible people who don't live and breathe this, um, this environment. And so a key thing that we've prioritized is, you know, leading with education and leading with, um, you know, kind of the, the, the most basic explanations and versions of, um, of, of, you know, what it is that we do. So, you know, when I, when I sit in a lot of those different offices, the way that I explain what Bitcoin mining is, is you buy electricity for one price and you sell electricity, the same electricity for a higher price, but you pushed it through these, you know, these high density servers that have created Bitcoins. So it's, it's a simple energy arbitrage opportunity at the highest level, you know, 10,000 foot view. Right. Then you get a layer deeper and they say, well, all right, well, how does that work? Um, and then you have to, you have to kind of have a, a one to two sentences about how does the Bitcoin network function? So the Bitcoin network is a, is a very elegant set of incentives where the work that it takes to secure the transaction sets, the UTXOs is done by folks like myself. And in exchange for doing that work, the network has allocated a supply, a supply schedule to reward in those folks over time. So the Bitcoin network releases 12 and a half Bitcoin plus fees on average every 10 minutes. And we receive our pro rata share on average of that, of that supply. So, you know, for, for, for these folks who have no background in this, they understand that Bitcoin is, you know, priced at whatever $7,100, but, you know, but how does it come to exist? How does that scarcity function? And how does, um, you know, how does the, the integrity of the transaction set and the supply amount, how does that get maintained? It gets maintained, it gets maintained by people like us and we're rewarded through that, through that predefined supply schedule. Right. So for those that are perhaps a little bit more in tune with this, a question would arise. How does a mining operation here in the United States compete against the behemoth that has become China and the more centralization and more of the meme pools that have arisen? How do you compete with more of the, the, the larger entities that have been in existence now for a few years that seem to do a lion's share of the mining? Uh, it, and, and it's a great point. So like, like most things, um, power laws emerge amongst folks who are doing mining. So I'm sure, you know, 80% of the work is being done by 20% of the miners, maybe, or some, some ratio that we've seen elsewhere in, in other industries. Um, the, the answer is you can compete along only a few vectors. So you can compete on energy price. We feel really confident in our ability to do that. We've got deep, you know, deep relationships here in the U.S. 
with uh, with energy generation sources that um, that will let us compete, you know, up and down um, with China, with China's prices, you know, all day long. Um, the next layer that you can compete along that I think is a little bit more difficult um, is on access to hardware. So, you know, we've heard lots of rumors around, you know, stuff that goes on in the hardware markets where your proximity to the manufacturing will probably correlate to, you know, to attractive pricing. So maybe, you know, so maybe it's harder for us to compete along, you know, hard, hardware procurement pricing. Um, but, but in terms of centralization, you know, I really don't worry about the centralization of mining pools just because the switching costs for us pointing hash at pool A versus pool B is is nearly zero. It's, it's almost entirely frictionless. Um, so as long as there's a sufficient number of pools, malicious actors will be, um, you know, will lose that will lose their access to hash over a very, very fast period of time um, because, you know, because we're economically driven actors. So we're not going to point hash towards the malicious pool and, and neither will um, the other folks who are mining. So I know you've done a lot of modeling on this, financial modeling on this. And so what is, there is speculation out there. So people that are listening can understand there's kind of some break-even prices for energy uh, and some other inputs like the, the equipment, as you mentioned, um, that all kind of manifests into what some people speculate as kind of a break-even point um, for Bitcoin, as it would be similar to investors who might understand kind of EMP or oil. There's usually, if you redact back a few years ago, uh, we had a bit of a situation here where we had oversupply and oil, WTI, went below to around $25 a barrel. You had a lot of rigs starting to shut down because it just became cost prohibitive for them to have those running. And so many people create that kind of parallel. They're trying to look for that relative parallel um, between Bitcoin mining and, say, oil. And so, you know, what are some of the inputs? You mentioned, you know, energy. You mentioned uh, the equipment. What are some of the, you know, kind of the modeling factors? What are some of the numbers? So for kilowatts an hour, you know, there's been speculation that it's like below four uh, kilowatts per hour to be in the money, if you will. So, talk, you know, talk to us about kind of what is, you know, some of the inputs these days to be in the money and kind of where are some of those inputs coming from, especially the equipment? Um, I think the listeners would like to know where the equipment usually comes from. Yeah, so so right now there's, you know, two to five kind of major equipment manufacturers. Uh, and I'll we'll start on the equipment side first. Um, so there, you know, so there's there's Bitmain, which is the you know, the gorilla in the room and has been for, for several years. There's Micro BT who makes the What's Miner uh, line of machines. There's, you know, there's uh, in a silicon, there's Canon um, with their recent IPO. You know, so there's, there's, you know, I'd say there's probably about five really credible hardware manufacturers. Um, they are all Chinese based. They're all manufacturing out of, out of mainland China. And some of them are assembling outside to avoid some of the tariff situation. But, but this is a, you know, this is a, a, an Asian industry. Um, the ratios that I think about as a miner when I'm evaluating hardware, um, are, the watts per terahash. So how much energy does it create, does it take to create one terahash? Um, and then how many dollars per terahash? So I'll take, you know, let's say the machine costs a thousand dollars and it's got 10 terahash. This isn't 
a real example, but it would be it would be a hundred dollars per terahash. And let's say it took a thousand uh, a thousand watts, it would be a hundred watts per terahash. So those are the ratios that I care about. Um, and then depending on those ratios, you can kind of assign a depreciation schedule that you can allocate the capex to. So you know the higher that ratio, uh, the the more terahash you get for the wattage, the longer you're going to be able to extend out that capex depreciation schedule because the usefulness of the machine is expected to be longer. Um, is kind of a the if I had to think about the two by two, I'd think about um, depreciation schedule across the top, and I think about energy price coming down the left, and so you know, I'm able to run some scenarios there. So, you know, if you think there, there's actually a really good uh, report by CoinShares um, that codifies a lot of this, where, you know, they've mapped out the different electricity prices. So everywhere between one cent and seven cents and depreciation schedules between 12 months and 48 months, um, you know, and it looks like, you know, we get, we get to about break even at, you know, five cents, and you know 18 month depreciation on hardware right now so so if you were you know, to use all of those inputs to create kind of a baseline or a a floor if you will on bitcoin's price to be in the money if you will um what mm-hmm. would i'm sure you've tried to look at that what would that be today again you know i, I have to caveat the the research that we've done by saying that you know the the it's impossible to make a make an accurate assumption there unless you really know the bell curve of energy prices across all Bitcoin miners. So, you know, assuming assuming a four cent, you know, price or five cent price, we we think on average it's probably, you know, somewhere north of four, but not six. So between four and six, um, it puts a, a price on a price floor on Bitcoin somewhere between you know, 5,900 and 6,900 ish, 5,900 and 7,200, that, that type of range. Got it. Um, so we're, you know, the, the current price of Bitcoin right now is starting to look like it's um, putting real pressure on the five and six cent and seven cent uh, miners, depending on the gear that they have. So if you're running prior gen gear for like an S9 um, and you've got six cent power, you're starting to feel squeeze. So talk to, us about um, the, the, talk to us a little bit more about that. What does that mean? So every year, Bitmain, Canon, and all them come out with a new version. Is that basically correct? Is that in line with kind of the way that things go? Um, so I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say that it's every year. So we've been seeing it slowing. So the way that, the way that these chips get manufactured and, and um, innovated on is that, you know, we... We we knew that our kind of when when Bitcoin started to get really you know really big so let's just let's just call that 2015 um, we knew that kind of the, the ceiling for nanometer size on a chip was about nine so that's how small you could use a laser to make circuits on a chip then the original Bitcoin miners were maybe 120 nanometers and to 60 nanometers so there was a big spread between between um, mass efficiency size and current size. So there was a, you know, so Bitmain was innovating every six months with significant gains 
to what they were able to produce during that time period. What's happened since then is that they've trended towards where the rest of the industry is in chip manufacturing. So now if you buy an S, you know, an S17 Pro plus what, you know, the, the, the names are hard to keep track of. Um, those are going to have those kind of seven, eight, nine nanometer chips that the rest of the industry uses as sort of best in breed. So there's less of that uh, very rapid innovation that comes from playing catch up. I think some people might be interested about this. So as we know, you know, traditional investors listen to the show, family offices listen to the show, and some of them might be questioning. So they might not have heard of Bitmain. They probably have heard of Canon because it just IPO'd, as you, as you rightly mentioned. Um, some of the other players might not have, you know, really resonated with, they might not know them, but I'm sure there's one chip maker that they know very well is Intel. Um, why the heck hasn't Intel gone into the space? They've been, a, you know, they've been making chips for decades and decades. Could they not be able to create something in this space? But, uh, I, if Intel, and, 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 you know, I'll say this directly to your audience. If anybody knows anybody at Intel and they want to get into the chip manufacturing, Bitcoin mining ASIC game, we will take that meeting in a heartbeat and we would love to help support them. Um, in that, you know, my, my fear is that the industry is just kind of not big enough to make it worthwhile to them yet. Interesting. Uh, you know, so, so if you look at, if you look at all Bitcoin mining revenue, you know, it's somewhere in the, in the, you know, $4 billion a year range before the halving. So, you know, let's just say there's 50% turnover each year on, on machines. And that's a pretty aggressive schedule, you know? At most, you're going to see a two billion dollar revenue line item for them. At most, okay. We'll see so, if the but uh, you know, I, I reiterate, I, I really hope they will get into the game. I think that it's you know, I think that if you know, if Bitcoin moves the way that we think it, it can move, um, this will be an incredible in, you know area for them to grow their business into, um, and we we look forward to them entering the market. Okay, so we're going to talk about uh, two more things before uh, getting to know you a little bit better. So Texas, uh, for the listeners here in the States, Texas has become uh, a little bit of a hotbed uh, for the mining world. Uh, there seems to be some activity there. Uh, so I'm curious to get your takes on what's happening in Texas uh, and if it's going to be a leader here in the United States as regards to kind of Bitcoin mining. Um, and then we're going to talk about the happening. But if you could, you know, let's talk Texas first. What, what's happening in Texas? Uh, it's been in the news over the last few months. Uh, there seems to be some money pouring in there uh, to build very sophisticated mining operations. What's happening down there? So, I mean, so, so the, the number one takeaway that we, that we think um, seeing these raises is that it's really exciting the investors that are willing to step up and put money into these operations because we think that the, the businesses certainly justify that level of investment and to see the folks like you know the bank capitals of the world the peter teals of the world um step up and, and enter this market is is tremendously exciting and should be seen as a as a significant positive for the, the mining industry but also more broadly for bitcoin um, the second takeaway is that it's the technology is really exciting. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, Bitcoin boiling the oceans FUD out there. You know, yes, this is a high, a high energy consumption industry. Absolutely. But like what I try to say, you know, when I'm in some of those more traditional rooms is that 
not every kilowatt hour is created equal. So would I rather take one off a coal-fired power plant or would I rather take one that's coming off a hydro dam or would I rather be capping a methane flare, which is what's going on in Texas um, and, and Colorado to a lesser degree right now. So, you know, each of these kilowatt hours has a, has a dramatically different um, environmental footprint. Um, and what we've seen by and large, and this is substantiated by several different research uh, operations, is that uh, Bitcoin mining is, is dramatically more renewables driven than almost every other industry that's out there and certainly all the other heavy manufacturing industries. Um, so we are a net, a net positive to the, uh, to the environment relative to other industries. Um, bringing that to Texas, back to Texas, uh, what's going on there is that they're capping, um, these, uh, these oil, these oil wells and oil fields. So what, so you, you drill for oil. One of the natural byproducts is, is methane gas, natural gas that comes out of the ground as a byproduct of the process. And when that comes out of the ground, you've got really three key opportunities. Number one, you let it go into the atmosphere untouched. That's not good. Number two, you burn it. So carbon is significantly uh, uh, less of a high-impact um, greenhouse gas than methane. So you burn it and you turn it into carbon. And it's also kind of not great. Number three is you do what's called capping it. Uh, where you you tap it and it either builds up underground, which can be dangerous, and you, you know you can't do that, um, or you use it to push through a generator. And so what what the folks um, what I think I believe and I, I don't know these these in quite as much detail as the the folks um, who just raised in Colorado and then the folks uh, in Texas as well um, are both engaging in this process and and they're basically capping these uh, these flare off points, creating generation, and they're going to mine Bitcoin. And, and why this is attractive is you're taking something that is um, just a, a byproduct of, of the energy processor of drilling foil, um, and you're able to get access to a very low cost of power because what you're not doing is buying it from the open market. You're, you're, you're using you know, technological innovation to get access to cheaper energy. And so without giving away the secret sauce, you know, where are you guys kind of finding those opportunities? Because I know you found some pretty unique ones. You don't have to give away the specifics, but where are you typically finding them? Are you finding, you know, similar type of situations where you have to think a little maybe outside of the box? Or what are you, what are you typically finding out there these days? Yeah, so we are not located in Texas. We're located in the Mid-Atlantic U.S., um, we similarly are work really, really closely with um, with one utility in specific, uh, who's who's been um, you know a thought leader ahead of the curve in how they think about delivering energy. And and similarly, we've been able to get access to some um, to some really exciting cost of power and some some exciting rates um, that require you know specific limitations and um, and opportunity. With the utility, but but really it required that relationship working hand in hand. We spent you know six or seven months with them before we broke ground on a property we bought, um, just to get them to really understand our business and our business needs, and also understand from a utilities perspective, you know what they're looking for and what they need to be able to accomplish alongside of us. Right. So let's talk about the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room. They're having it's happening next year you know, kind of circa five months, give or take, uh, from what I can tell. Um, some people know about it. Some people don't. 
Um, obviously, for those that do know about it, this is just a refresh. For those that don't, there is a systematic change happening to those like Harry and others that are mining Bitcoin uh, in a few months uh, as it relates to things that are called block rewards. Uh, for all of the energy and the work uh, that Harry and other miners out there are doing, um, they, as Harry alluded to, get rewarded with Bitcoin. Um, and there's a release of about 12 every 10 minutes currently right now. And systematically, uh, as it was written um, 10 years ago, uh, that will change uh, when certain milestones effectively are met. And so uh, talk to us about the impact of the happening next, uh, next year. There have been speculation that it could be a day of reckoning that miners that uh, do not have the latest and greatest of equipment and those that are paying a lot for energy are going to get wiped out. Um, and then there are those that are saying that this is going to be a very good thing for Bitcoin because effectively, and I say this, I know I say the word supply, I know that is not uh, the way that the Bitcoin camp calls it, but for those in traditional investments, you know, they can think of it as a classical supply and demand uh, economy here. The supply uh, potentially might get cut, um, and if demand is continually to get pent up, not just here in the United States, but in places that are dealing with hyperinflation, for instance, um, that if the demand gets pent up with the lowering of supply, that prices could accrete. Um, what is your take on all of this? Yeah, so I think you know, I think you touch on a lot there. So from from us as miners and our perspective. Um, you know, anytime, anytime you know that there is a predictable moment when revenue is going to get cut in half, um, you spend a lot of time thinking about it and planning for it and understanding what that's going to mean for your business. Um, cause that's a big change. So if prices stay the same and hash rate stays the same and May, you know, mid May is, is when it's projected. Um, we get out to May, everything, everything is, is the same and that happens. Um, you know, the, the mining community is going to is going to have some blood in the streets. You know, it's it's going to be a time when if you don't, you know, exactly like you said, if you don't have a low cost of power and you don't have uh, at least, you know, at least a blend of these of these top of line machines, you're, you're probably going to lose some money. And I'm sure some folks are going to end up getting bankrupt. That's you know, that is that is likely, you know, the other scenario that we that we've thought about is what if price goes up. Significantly, you know, if, if we see a higher Bitcoin price, let's say, you know, even if we touch, you know, the local, the recent local maximum of of fourteen thousand, it'll be a lot less painful. You know, I think we'll see. I think we'll see. You know, some folks still get shaken out, but but not nearly as many. Um, so it it's you know really going to be dependent on the price of Bitcoin, the network hash rate, and the the you know so bitcoin stays at seven supply gets cut in half miners go out of business hash rate goes down everybody who survives will get a larger piece of the pie so they'll be able to make up some ground that way um, while those machines get reallocated to either lower cost power or they'll just be um they'll just be cycled out so the way you know the way that we think about it is spend a lot of time focusing on on operational efficiency um, and making sure that we've got the right, uh, the right capital partners in place, um, you know, to either to accelerate our movement towards higher efficiency machines 
um, or, you know, or understand that there's going to be, you know, that there's going to be a, a reduction in profitability for a period of time, you know, while the market sorts itself out. So let me ask you a question. Some people might think about it this way. So we talked about the centralization of Bitcoin mining as it relates to China. Could it not be hypothetical? And by the way, for everyone who listens, I love getting into hypotheticals with Harry. We, we've gotten into some very deep ones before, and I enjoy these, and I think you will too. So talk about a hypothetical where the miners, the, the large mining pools, specifically in China, and this is happening, as you alluded to, and say, you know, the price does not get to 14000 or 13000 We don't see any type of price movement over the next few months. Is it something that might be stipulated that the larger miners out there have the ability to kind of keep those prices down so there is a, a, a basically a, a plague, if you will, a, a, a destruction and a nuclear war of many of those so they can get rid of a lot of the mining uh, people out there so they can take more of that pie? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think that that's, and, and again, I, I think this is totally hypothetical, but but it's a good thought exercise. So, you know, so the scenario that you're laying out is that there's, you know, significant miners who overlap with significant, you know, Bitcoin holders, and they're willing to spend some leveled coin to keep price at a at an unattractive uh, level going into the halving in order to shake out significant percentage of uh, of current miners, let's say. So the 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 math you have to run um, would be how many coins do we think they have? You look at the the, the aggregated order books and see you know how many coins they have to spend to keep price at current, mm-hmm. and then how many coins do they think they could get their hands on once you know once they're able to let's just say they're able to pick up twenty five percent more of global hash rate because that leaves the market. Right. You know, is is 25% of global hash rate over the next, you know, two years worth 5,000 Bitcoins or 25,000 Bitcoins or 100,000 Bitcoins? I, I, you know, I I don't have it in in Excel in front of me, but, you know, but that's kind of the calculus you'd have to run is that how much of the current hash rate do you think we could shake out with a move like that? And how many coins would it take to accomplish it? And then how many coins would I get access to in the event that that cohort exits the market? Right. It, you know, it's a, it's a real scenario. Um, you know, these, these hardware markets are super cutthroat. You know, I, I say it all the time, that, you know, there, there is no more competitive industry right now that I've seen in Bitcoin mining. You know, it is, it is super zero sum, you know, hyper aggressive, uh, there's, you know, there's only so much, you know, one, two, three, four cent power in the world. And there's only so many ASICs to get your hands on. So it's, you know, it's, it's really a land grab type of environment. Um, so I, you know, I could, I could certainly entertain that hypothetical. Yeah. I've, you know, and again, these are hypotheticals. There's nothing to be read into there. There's no insight. There's no, you know, obviously no information leading to that. These are all hypotheticals that are being, you know, predominantly speculated on social media and other kind of venues. And so they are specifically, you know, hypotheticals uh, about that. But I find it interesting that, in, you know, in terms of an analogy, again, that, you know, in traditional finance with hedge funds, 
you have very large ones, without naming names, that play the activist game. And those activist investors, you know, take more than 5% of the, the total allocation of stock out there. And they start to get very, very active uh, in media. They start, you know, talking about changes they want to make on the board. Um, they start willing their power, basically. Um, and so I think of it very similarly is that there is a group of, um, you know, activists out there, basically people that have uh, large sums of Bitcoin right now and, you know, have the ability to, you know, do what they want. Um, and so it's not all too ill familiar, familiar from traditional finance, in my opinion. Um, unfortunately, these things happen in finance. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens. Obviously, this is a very interesting topic and a lot of people are keeping their eyes and ears open on it. So with that, as we... I, I want I yeah. to jump in on one more thing on that, Dave. I'm sorry to cut you off. Um, I think that something that, that gets under-discussed in Bitcoin is, is the market microstructure. Mm -hmm. um, which you you alluded to before about you know if you if you you know if we, if we see Bitcoin stay at the same price we know you know we know there's eighteen hundred of those being generated a day let's just assume two thirds of those have to get sold to cover costs so there's you know so there's you know twelve hundred Bitcoin being sold into the market every single day for mm -hmm. price to stay flat those have to be bought at market so you know so all of a sudden the sell pressure gets cut in half maybe or a third gets removed. There's going to be some relief. Um, you know, if the same buyers are continuing to enter the market every day, you know, price will have to go up because all of a sudden there's more buyers than sellers. Um, but but what you what you hinted at really is that the reason the the, the large bag holders these days are able to have such a high uh, degree of impact on um, on the market is because these are still relatively thin order books. So the other side the other side of that of that blade is that they're relatively thin order books on the way up. So the reason you see, you know, the reason you see such volatility in these markets is because, you know, I, I looked uh, the other day, there's a, a good website that aggregates some order books together. It would cost $64 million to move the Bitcoin price up 10%. Wow. $64 million is a very, very small position for a lot of these hedge funds. Yep. That were, you know, that you're talking, that you're talking about to take activist positions. So if you're a hedge fund out there and you're looking to, Take an activist position in Bitcoin. I recommend buying sixty-four million dollars of of Bitcoin. But that's not financial advice. Right. There is no financial advice on Base Layer. <laughs> so, uh, we'll, we'll just uh, have that as a, a a note on that. Um, as we're wrapping up, Harry, one of the things that we like to do, as you know, uh, on the show, is kind of get an idea if our readers, our our, our listeners, our guests are reading anything of, of interest um, and also listen to anything that uh, could be interesting for people to learn about. It kind of gives a little bit more about you. Um, and so we like to learn a little bit more about our guests and then uh, we'll have everyone uh, find out where they can find out more about Grid. Uh, but anything that you've read recently, it could be a book, it could be Medium Post, anything that you uh, kind of read that really stuck out to you over the last few weeks and any music that you like. So I'll start with music. I've just um, I've just been obsessed with uh, re-listening to Kanye's Dark Twisted Fantasy. Wow. End to end. Um, I think it's like one of the, the absolute best albums that are out there. Um, so I listen to that and I listen to a lot of uh, classical music and um, movie soundtracks. Mm. Very interesting. So those are, those are my typical go-tos right now. Um, in terms of reading, uh, I, I do love to read. I'm reading um, Sanction by Roman McClay, 
right now, and I'm also uh, rereading the Steve Jobs biography. Ah, I haven't read that yet. A lot of people have read that. So I, I gotta... try to. I, it, it's really good. I try to pair one fiction and one nonfiction because I, I tend to need to move back and forth between the two. So it gives me, you know, two, two things to grab, to grab at depending on my mood. Very interesting. And so people can learn more about grid. Is there any place uh, that they can go or they can get in touch with you? Uh, yeah. So I, I'm the easiest way to get in touch with us. Um, I'm just uh, Harry underscore S U D O C K on Twitter. Um, or harry at griid.com for email and anybody's welcome to reach out and talk about this stuff you know i do i do you know really think that um that mining is kind of the the easiest and most approachable type of um investable area of the bitcoin ecosystem other than just buying naked underlying bitcoin so i, I do think we represent kind of a, a unique sleeve of where capital can go um, so those are those are discussions, you know, and, and you know, interesting things that we can talk about awesome. uh, at a later date. So this is my friend Harry from Grid. We had a great conversation about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining and about the entire state of the state of the space, the happening. A lot of people are talking about that. So please reach out to Harry. Uh, talk to the team over at Grid. They are very knowledgeable about this space, and uh, we'll be catching up with you in 2020 and seeing how things are going. Thanks, Harry. Awesome. Thanks, David. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter. Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.